So today's interesting being this, uh, what's this, spring forward day? Yeah, losing sleep. You know, when you get old, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Whatever, you know. You're up all night, you get up at four, who cares? Whatever. But anyway, when we coming to this passage today, which I think is maybe one of the most important, the message of this passage, one of the most important things uh, in all of Scripture for us to understand. So we're here for it, and so we're going to hear it. We're going to continue in Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians. We're in chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, verses 11 through 15 will be the main text. If you want to, uh, if, you're, if you're doing the Bible thing, which is good, also put, if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 6, we'll be in Romans chapter 6, sec, second, what's it? Uh, Colossians chapter 2, sort of going back and forth between those two. Because in those passages, Paul addresses a key thing, a, a super important thing in our lives. Uh, that is our identity in Christ. Now, your identity refers to who you are. And in our day, people seem to be increasingly confused and uncertain about this. They want to know, who am I really? We refer to this uh, as sort of an identity crisis. This can be seen in the popularity of uh, DNA analysis. How many have done that? Uh, Ancestry, 23andMe stuff. People want to know their ethnic uh, or racial roots, believing this will give them insight into who they really are. And for years, women have struggled, they tell me, I've never been one, uh, with their multiple identities. Wife, mother, career woman. Men seem to struggle as well as they uh, often identify themselves with what they do. I'm a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a plumber, a pastor. And when they lose their job or they retire, they struggle with who they are now. And unfortunately, more and more people are struggling with the very nature of who they are. They're actually asking uh, what gender do I identify as? Am I male or female or something else? And to that question, God's word is clear. He created us male and female. So biblically, scientifically, you are what your chromosomes say you are. And yet people struggle. Now we could certainly delve into that struggle uh, a little more why that is, but that's not Paul's point in Colossians. However, his point does have to do with understanding our identity, the nature of who we are, specifically who we are as Christians, as believers, who we are in Christ. Am I a sinner, a saint, or something else? And even though, uh, like the gender issue, We'll see that God's word is clear about this, yet Christians struggle. And so, as we come to our passage for today, it's my prayer that we'll grow in our understanding and application of our identity in Christ. That we'll not only know who we are in Christ, but we'll live based on that reality. And to see the importance of our identity in Christ, we need to understand the context of these verses. So, uh, you know... We, we, we go through this stuff verse by verse or a little passage by passage, sentence or paragraph by paragraph, but it's, it's in a context of a book and in a context of, 
chapters and things Paul says. So last week, we looked at the verses before this, 8 through 10. We saw Paul's mandate, his command to resist being taken captive. In verse 8, he wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. False teachers in the Colossae area were seeking to captivate these believers, these Christians. They were offering a Christless message filled with empty, deceptive philosophies, philosophies based on human tradition, but ultimately coming from elemental or demonic spirits. And in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives the Colossians both motivation and means to resist captivity. He counters this Christless false philosophies by proclaiming the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he provides. He writes, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul reminds us of the message of Christ's supremacy he wrote in chapter 1. So again, the context is chapter 1. We're not going to read that, but this is a reminder of of Christ's supremacy. In Christ dwells the fullness of God, and in Christ we're filled with everything we need and more. When you, by God's grace through faith, fully receive Jesus Christ the Lord, the Bible says you are in Christ. Mysterious, spiritually, you're in Christ. And being in Christ means you receive the fullness of Christ. You're filled in Him. You are identified with Him. You are a a Christian, a a little Christ, which was meant to be derogatory, but is really a great thing to be called. Your identity is in Christ. And as such, by God's grace, you receive what Christ receives. Also, Christ is the head of, of all rule and authority. He is supreme over the elemental or demonic spirits. In context, Paul is saying that when you've been filled in Christ, why would you seek anything from a Christless philosophy that originates from the pit of hell? So that's a summary of what we looked at last week, which leads to what we're going to be looking at this week. Paul, in verse 10, said that those who are in Christ are filled in Him. And then in verses 15, excuse me, 11 through 15, he continues to explain what it means to be filled in him, to be in him. He's going to tell the Colossians and us who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. This will certainly provide further motivation and encouragement to resist being taken captive by Christless philosophies. In fact, Verse 16, so this is, we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about next week. I'm going to mention it. Of Colossians chapter 2, Paul begins with the word, therefore. And and then he continues to defend the believer against these Christless philosophies. These false teachers were adding to, you might think adding to is good, but adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ just dilutes it. And so they're adding to, diluting the true gospel of Christ seeking to disqualify believers who were not following their philosophies, not playing by their ultimately demonic rules. So in context, Paul is saying knowing who you are in Christ, get this, knowing who you are in Christ is essential, crucial, when you're faced with false teachers and false Christless philosophies. 
Be grounded. You need to be grounded in who you are in Christ. And he'll go on in chapter 3 to show that knowing who you are in Christ is essential for resisting and overcoming sin in your life. Put simply, if we're going to be successful in living the Christian life as God has uh, called us to, as God has, uh, would have us do, it's crucial to understand our identity in Christ. And so in verses 11 through 15, Paul declares to the Colossians and all believers, this is who you are in Christ. And to help us understand this, he uses several illustrations or, or metaphors. He begins by saying that we are circumcised in Christ. That may sound a little weird, but we'll explain it. Verse 11, in him also, it begins, in Christ also. So along with, or as part of being filled in him, that's what he was talking about in verse 10, all that follows, verses 11 through 15, is, a, is the consequence of being in Christ. This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ. And to describe our identity, again, Paul begins with this metaphor of circumcision. In him also, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Clearly, Paul's not speaking of actual physical circumcision, the removal of the foreskin, because he specifically says circumcision made without hands. This is not a physical, but a spiritual circumcision. But to understand the spiritual, uh, we need to first understand the physical. He's using a metaphor, so we need to understand what he's metaphoring, if that's a word. Circumcision was instituted by God with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, way, way, way ago. In Genesis chapter 12, even farther back, God made a covenant with Abraham. Through him and his descendants, God would make a great nation. God would bless them, and through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's sort of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And we understand, side note, all the families on earth will be blessed through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. That's not our point here, but it's good to know. So God, as recorded in Genesis 12, makes this covenant with Abraham. And then in Genesis 17, God confirms this covenant. Beginning in uh, verse 10, we read, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So circumcision is an outward sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. When a Jewish male child was circumcised, it was a sign that they, they were now part of the Abrahamic covenant. They became part of God's chosen people. In fact, throughout the Bible, one of the ways Gentiles, those who are not part of God's people, are referred to is as uncircumcised, those uncircumcised Gentiles. We'll see this shortly in verse 13 of Colossians 2. So physical circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin, was a symbol of being part of God's covenant people. And out of that, in the Old Testament even, circumcision became a metaphor for cutting away sin and undergoing a change of heart. 
God's people, the Jews, were to be both physically and spiritually circumcised. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, 16, we read, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4, 4, the prophet declares, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. So in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, physical circumcision was a sign that you were part of God's chosen people, and metaphorically, it was used to signify a transformation of the heart. And so, we've got the, the background, and so when Paul says, in him also you were circumcised, and these are mainly Gentiles, they, they hadn't probably been physically circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, he's saying that if you are in Christ, you've been spiritually circumcised. You're chosen by God. You're part of God's chosen people. You're part of God's new covenant people. Your sins have been cut off, and, you're experience, and you're expe you've experienced the transformation of the heart. That's who you are in Christ. And then Paul goes on to describe how God accomplishes this spiritual circumcision in our lives. Verse 11 continues, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ doesn't refer to the, his physical circumcision, but to the spiritual circumcision of those who trust in him, those who are in him. Christ is the circumciser of those who put their trust in him. And what Paul is illustrating is a, is a spiritual operation, a work of Christ in which he puts off, he cuts off the body of the flesh. Like the foreskin is cut off in physical circumcision, Christ cuts off, he removes the body of the flesh. The Greek word putting off denotes both stripping off and casting away. The imagery is that of discarding, of being rid of a piece of filthy clothing, which means that those who are in Christ as those who have been circumcised by Christ, as those who are part of God's new covenant people, the body of our flesh has been stripped off and cast away. Therefore, we are no longer enslaved to the sinful desires of the flesh. That's sort of the bottom line. No longer enslaved to the sinful desires. That's going to be a big deal throughout Paul's, uh, this, this section here. You are no longer enslaved to the sinful desires of the flesh. We'll see more of that. Before we came to Christ, we were ruled by our sinful fleshly nature. But in Christ, the flesh no longer rules. It's been cut off. It's been put off. In Christ, we are, uh, no longer need follow. We no longer need to give in to. We no longer need to uh, go after the desires of the flesh. Therefore, we're free. By the power of God's Spirit, we're free to live for, to walk in, to worship and glorify Christ. Remember, we talked several weeks ago, we talked about what it meant to walk in Christ. Well, this, 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 this circumcision, who you're on Christ, gives you the freedom to now walk in Christ, to live for Christ. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glorify in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Understand this. As one who has been circumcised by Christ, you are no longer ruled by your flesh. 
You need not give in to the temptations of the flesh. You need not rely on the flesh to meet uh, your earthly, your, your, your needs your, and desires. You need not put your confidence in the flesh. For the flesh has been put off. Amen? And I know some of us, well, what? Okay, I get it, but what, why is this happening in my life then? And we'll talk more about that, especially when we get to chapter 3, but we'll talk about it here as well. So we've seen that our identity in Christ includes being spiritually circumcised by Christ. Our sinful flesh is put off. We're now free to live in uh, righteousness for Christ. That's who we are. That's our identity in Christ. Paul then, to further describe our identity in Christ, moves to another metaphor. Not only is the believer circumcised in and by Christ, but we are baptized in Christ. If you were here a few uh, months ago, I think it was months, maybe weeks, uh, when Elishba was baptized, remember, behind that curtain is a baptismal. So we revealed that. And uh, if you remember, I said, baptism is the public declaration identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's an outward sign of what's taken place on the inside of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And here in Colossians, Paul is using the symbolism of baptism, which is a symbol itself, but he's using the symbolism of the symbol to further reinforce our identity in Christ. First, he says, we are buried with Christ. Backing up to verse 11, for context, we read, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Notice the connection Paul makes between uh, circumcision and baptism. He's saying that, that what took place when you were circumcised by Christ, which we've just talked about, that that, that putting off of the flesh and becoming part of God's covenant people took place because of having been buried with Christ in baptism. Again, baptism, not speaking of actual physical baptism accomplishing this. It's using baptism as an illustration of what takes place in the life of those who are in Christ. When one is physically baptized, the first thing they experience is being put under the water. The symbolism is of our burial and death. Anybody see the, uh, the Jesus Revolution movie? I talked about that when Greg Laurie was baptized. And I don't know, it was kind of interesting artistically. He, he's way down there in the water. So completely submerged, burial, death. That's what baptism symbolizes. So as circumcision symbolizes the putting off of the sinful flesh, baptism further symbolizes the death and burial of the flesh. Now, baptism represents more than just the death of the flesh. It also represents new life in Christ, and we'll get to that in our next point. But first, we're buried with Christ in baptism. As those who are in Christ, we're buried with Him. That's exactly what Paul writes to the Romans First passage from Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So 
So being buried with Christ is bapt- in baptism means you're baptized into his death. Now, what does that mean? It means that in, in a uh, mysterious way, uh, the power of God at work, spiritual way, we were united with Christ in his death. We died in Christ. As Paul said uh, of himself to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Not that Paul was physically crucified or that we physically die. Christ died on our behalf. But just as circumcision symbolizes the actual removal of sinful flesh, the burial of baptism symbolizes the actual death of our sinful flesh. So it's sort of a double whammy here. We got the circumcision, it's removed, and now it's dead. For those who are in Christ, our old life is dead, a thing of the past. And what does this mean? Well, Paul explains it this way, again to the church in Rome, chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we've been united with him in his death, like his, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And so we'll talk about that in our next point. But back to the death part. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Pretty clear even, right? The old self here refers to the person we were before conversion, before we came to Christ. Remember, Jesus said to to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we come to Christ, whether we feel it or not, whether we get the heebie-jeebies, the emotional thing, which is great if you get it, but if you don't, whether you feel it or not, an actual supernatural change takes place. A new birth. A new person. A new creation is born. The old passes away. Or as Paul says in Romans, our old self was crucified. And the body of sin, our sinful flesh, has been brought to nothing. That is, it's been rendered uh, inoperative. It doesn't work anymore. What does that mean? And what that means is, again, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Before our conversion... Before our circumcision and baptism, we were slaves to sin. We were at the mercy of, of Christless philosophies, empty deceit. We were at the mercy of demonic, the demonic spirits of this world, but no longer. But no longer. Now, in Christ, we have the power to resist temptation, to say no to sin. We have the power through God's Spirit to overcome the world, the flesh, the devil. They no longer rule in our lives. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We're set free from sin, which doesn't mean we cannot sin. I think we all know that. But it does mean we're not enslaved to sin. We who are in Christ, by God's grace and His Spirit's power, we can overcome sin. 
But to do that, we have to, be, we have to walk in Christ. Again, back to several weeks ago. We have to be filled with and submit to the Spirit of Christ. And we'll look at this in much more detail in chapter, when we get to chapter 3. So being in Christ means we've been baptized, buried in Christ. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. That's who we are. That's our identity in Christ. But there's more. And that brings us to the second symbol, symbolic part of baptism. We not only die and are buried with Christ, but we are raised with Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, baptism symbolizes the death of our old self and the resurrection of a new creature in Christ, a new birth. It's that born again thing Jesus talked about. And Paul's saying we were raised with him, we were raised with Christ. He rose, therefore we rose. And just to be clear, this isn't speaking of that future physical resurrection that we'll receive after our physical death. Behold, at the last trump, in the twinkling in the eye, the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says in Thessalonians, that's not what we're talking about. This resurrection is not future, it's present. When we, by God's grace, put our faith in God's power, a power that raised Christ from the dead, we're united with Christ in his resurrection now. Which means, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Prior to our conversion, prior to coming to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were the walking dead, if you will. We were uncircumcised. That is, we were living in enslavement to our sinful flesh. But God, through our union with Christ's resurrection, He made us alive in Him. Conversion means resurrection to new life. You've been born again. You're a new creature in Christ. As Philip Brooks wrote, the great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death. That is not the great thing, but that we are to be new here. Not so much that we are to live forever as that we are to and may live nobly now. We are resurrected now. Your eternal life began when you came to Christ, not when you die. We need to allow this truth truth to sink deep into our souls so it will empower us to live for God today. That's the point Paul makes in Romans 6, 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. So, you must command, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's who you are. The word consider means uh, more than just, uh, th uh, think about that for a minute. 
It means to set to our account, to reckon, to count as so, as true. As we reflect on our identity in Christ, uh, we are to set two things to our account, two things to our record. First, we're dead to sin. And second, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the truth for those who are in Christ. Paul wants us to understand that our identity in Christ includes our baptism in Christ. That, that is our participation in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, we're, we are to daily reckon. You guys get that word reckon? Uh, consider, uh, believe, trust, put to our account that we died with Christ. That we were buried with Christ. And that we are resurrected with Him. And therefore, we are able uh, to live in Him for Him. And again, as Paul says of himself in Galatians 2.20, let's read the whole verse this time. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, we have new life in Christ. Christ lives in us. And we live not by sight, but by faith in Christ who loves us. We ought to preach this to ourselves uh, again and again. Do you preach to yourself? Do you tell yourself again and again the truths that God has given you through His Word? Preach it. I mean, I'm only here once a week. But you're with you uh, pretty much all the time. Maybe not, I don't know. Preach to yourself again and again so that it's embedded itself in our souls. Because this is a thing we have trouble believing. We need to be convinced of who we are in Christ. That is one who has died to his or her old sinful uh, self and one who is now new in Christ. Now maybe you struggle with that. I can't I don't know if I can believe that because of what happened yesterday, because of that uh, irritating thing I did, that sinful thing I did. Maybe your old, old self seems to be haunting and tempting you with your old sins. Paul seems to understand this, and so he wants his readers to know that our identity in Christ also includes the fact that we are forgiven in Christ. Verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We were not only delivered from bondage, from the bondage of death, but from the guilt of sin. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave you. He forgave us all our sins by canceling the record of debt. Again, another metaphor that Paul uses. In the Roman world of of Paul's day, the debtor would write out what he owed to another, sort of an IOU. 
Paul uses this record of debt, this IOU, to illustrate our indebtedness to God because of our violation of His law. As our Creator, God rightly makes legal demands on our lives. Just so we're clear, this this newness in Christ uh, doesn't do away with God's justice and righteousness. He makes legal demands on our lives. For the Jew, those demands were enumerated in the law of Moses. And for the Gentiles and the Jews as well, the law is written on our hearts. Paul says again in Romans, this time chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The point is, both Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, knowingly violate the law of God. And in so doing, we accumulate debt. We're in debt to God. And what do we owe for our many violations of God's legal demands? Well, again, the church in Rome, to the church in Rome, Paul makes it clear, for the wages of sin is death. Here Paul speaks in terms of wages. What we earn for our sin is death, and therefore what we owe God for our sin for, is, our, is our very lives. And, and I believe it's, and we won't go into it, but I believe it's eternal death. It's not just, you're gone. It's eternal death, eternal separation from God. It's not good. But thanks be to God that for those who are in Christ, He has canceled the record of debt. He has forgiven our sins. And how does He do that? Well, He doesn't just wipe it away. Oh, my, oh sorry, I speak in Thai. Maipenrai means hakuna matata. It doesn't matter, right? Whatever. God doesn't do that. Paul pictures it this way. Here's the long list of our sins. See it? Visualize it. Not pretty. Your record of debt. But instead of holding you accountable, instead of taking your life, which would be just, God nails the record of your debt, your sins, and the penalty for your sins to the cross. The cross where His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, was nailed in your place and mine. As the chorus of the hymn, He paid the debt, makes clear. I was debating whether I should sing it. I've decided not to. He paid a debt he did not owe. If, you're, if you want to sing and you know the song, I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing that brand new song, Amazing Grace, for Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. We had a debt. We couldn't pay it. I mean, it would be an eternity of not paying the debt. Amen, right? Jesus paid our debt. Praise the Lord. Our identity in Christ is that of one whose sins have been forgiven, whose debt has been canceled through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We are, uh, because our debt has been paid, because our sins have been forgiven, we are now righteous in Christ. We're righteous before God. One final illustration just to drive this home. 
Martin Luther experienced the reality of his debt being canceled in a dream. He was visited at night by Satan, who brought to him a record of his whole life written with his own hand. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write it? The poor, terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but, sorry, but written across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Like Luther, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Our guilt has been lifted. In Christ, we are a forgiven people, righteous before God, holy before God. And finally, Paul writes, we are triumphant in Christ. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He, God, defeated the rulers and authorities in him, in Jesus Christ. On the cross, not only was our record of debt canceled, but the rulers and authorities, same as same back to those elemental demonic spirits, the rulers of this world, they were defeated. Commenting on this passage, Pastor Kent Hughes writes, God paradoxically did to them what they did to Christ when they dragged him through Jerusalem, stripped him naked, treated him with contempt, and nailed the charges against him on the cross. God stripped the rulers and authorities of their power, putting them to shame, exposing their weakness. Like Samson after his haircut, the rulers and authorities after the sacrificial death of Christ they have no more strength. His image, this, this image of defeat and being put to open shame comes from, from the way a Roman general would celebrate a military victory. They had marched through the, the streets of Rome exhibiting the spoils of war and parading or, or shaming their captives. Paul may be envisioning a, a triumphant Christ parading his defeated, humiliated, demonic foes before the throne of God. But whatever, uh, whatever Paul is saying, in any case, the reality is Christ on the cross triumphed over the rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces of evil in this world. And the implication for us, for those who are in Christ, uh, is astonishing. We were circumcised, baptized, forgiven in Christ, and therefore, we are triumphant in Christ. Christ's victory on the cross brings our freedom from the tyranny of these demonic forces. Paul wants us to understand that even though uh, they still exist, they are defeated. They're a defeated foe. Thus, we need to no longer fear the outcome of our battle with evil. Christ has triumphed. He has won the victory. And therefore, we, those who are in Him, have triumphed as well. Another old hymn describes our victory in Jesus. Our, my Savior forever, He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. So Paul has made, a, a, made clear our identity in Christ. 
We're circumcised in Christ. Our sinful flesh has been removed, cast off, put away by Christ. We're baptized in Christ. Our old self is dead and buried, and we've been raised to new life in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ. Our record of debt, our sins, has been nailed to the cross, paid in full by the blood of Christ. We are righteous in Christ. And we're triumphant in Christ. We share in his victory over rulers and authorities, the satanic, demonic forces of this world. So don't struggle with your identity in Christ. You are not a sinner. That is not who you are. That is not who, how God sees you. You are because of Christ, not because of you or me, because of Christ and his work, his work on the cross his work in your life, you are a saint. Remember, that's how Paul addresses right at the beginning, uh, the Colossians, in the beginning of the letter, to the, he doesn't say to the saints who sometimes sin, he doesn't say to the sinners who could be saints, he says to the saints, that's who you are. And faithful brothers in Christ, in Christ, at Colossae. And now in In the verses we've looked at today, Paul has told the Colossians and us why we're no longer sinners, but saints and faithful brothers in Christ, sisters too. So the question comes, what's our response? Hope we're clear now on our identity. So how do we respond to that? First, for the saints, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. I'd say the right response would be to live based on who you are in Christ. To walk in Christ, to worship Christ, to proclaim Christ. Honor and glorify Christ, to seek to be more like Christ. Again, more on that in chapter 3. If we'd have had several hours, I'd have went ahead and gone there. But just prepare yourself for chapter 3. Today, may our prayer be as the Apostles Paul was... In in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Being more like Christ. Sharing with Christ in all he has. So that's the response for those uh, whose identity is rooted in Christ. But what about those who've yet to come to Christ? Those who still, still have their sinful flesh attached. Those whose, whose only experience in life is the experience of the old self. No resurrection, no new life. Those who've not experienced the forgiveness of their sin or, and are still living under the guilt and penalty of death. What should their response be? Well, I hope it's obvious. The response is to come to Christ. To trust in Christ. To give your life to Jesus Christ the Lord. And experience both salvation from your sins and a new life, a freedom in Christ. A new identity in Christ where where you now have the power to live as you ought. So I'd invite you with the words of Revelation chapter 22 verse 17. The spirit of the bride says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's a free gift that Jesus offers. If you're thirsty for what is real, if you desire to enter a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you desire to die to your sins, 
to have your sins forgiven and receive new life, a new identity in Christ, then come to Him. Call out to Christ in the depths of your heart. Don't let yourself go through another day without coming to Him. Be, as Jesus said, born again. Become, as Paul said, a new creature in Christ. Receive new life. Be filled in Christ. Be delivered. Become a saint in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for for who you are and because of who you are, who you've made us to be in Christ. Lord, I pray that for each person here, I pray that we we would reckon that to ourselves. We would believe it and we would begin living based on it. We would trust your word that declares we're saints in Christ. Lord, and for those that have yet to come to Christ, I pray that they would do that, that they would, they would turn to you, not with a, a words, with special prayers, but with belief in their heart. They would turn to you and just say, Father, I desire relationship with you through Christ. I want Christ. I want a new identity in Christ. I want to be transformed by Christ. I thank you for what Christ has done for me on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would, you would just make that real to anyone who doesn't, doesn't know you yet, that they would come to you even now. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close out with our last song in worship here, if you'd like to stand with me, you're more than welcome to.